0: hosts Gene Steinberg and David Piede.
1: You know, over the last two years, as our message boards grow, we always get requests from listeners to talk about a specific topic or have a specific guest. Well, I tell you, ladies and gentlemen, a lot of times we listen. We listen to your questions. We listen to your guest suggestions. Mm-hmm. And we actually have these people on the show. But there are some people we're never going to put on the show. And you know who they are?
2: Oh. An old Okay, he who shall not be named will well, never come on the twice. show again. He's not come again. No, well, no, okay. He's not involved with the paranormal topic. He's just a charlatan.
1: Okay. So we're not going to have him back, right? And that guy who wrote about extraterrestrial science, he <laughs> won't be on our show again either, and a few other people. Right. Of course. No. Oh, and and David
2: me. Sarita won't be on, will he? You know, I'd actually love to have him back on. Just to rip him into little tiny wriggling pieces. <laughs> <laughs> that, just like we should have Sean David Morton on again. He tr- Remember when he tried to come back on? Yes. Yeah. Around the the Phoenix Lights thing. Um, yes, because said, he knows oh, everything. Yeah.
1: He knows everything. He knows he knows that, and he also he connects by channeling to Gene Roddenberry because he never That's knew right. him in life. That's
2: right. Oh, God. Then there are other people who have tried to get on the show who we just really won't won't let on. And actually, by the time this show airs, I will have met one of those people in person because I will just have been coming back from the Atlantic UFO conference thing happening in Atlantic City, which unfortunately is too late to publicize now on the Paracast. But there's someone who's tried coming on the Paracast, Gene. She contacted you. She's going to be at this thing, and, and I'm going to probably end up uh, a sort of – how do I say this politely? Uh, giving her a hard time publicly at this event this weekend.
1: And that's an understatement. Oh, yeah. We won't mention her name. Uh, not for now. No, okay. For sure. There's also a topic or two that we won't discuss. Now, yes, we sometimes discuss politics, and partly because as soon as you talk about UFO secrecy, you enter the political realm. You know, you talk about the government keeping it secret. You talk about secret governments. And we have actually mentioned the Kennedy assassination, not because we want to discuss the Kennedy assassination. But Uh, according to one of the guests that we had on, in fact, several people who are writing about that subject, one of the figures in the Maury Island UFO case, Fred Lee Christman, was also somehow involved in... Hmm. The Kennedy assassination, he was one of those bums or hobos that were shown in the pictures of the Kennedy assassination on the grassy knoll or something like that? Yeah, I guess so. Okay, so uh, yeah. I don't know. So, you know, maybe people are trying to find a connection between the Kennedy assassination and UFOs. I don't see a paranormal connection. I can see a lots of ways you can certainly interpret the possibility of a conspiracy. Sure. We could say that, frankly, there's a
2: a well-known conspiracy that Lyndon Johnson was responsible. But, you know, who knows? Who knows? The question is, are we going to talk about those on the Paracast? And the answer is, quite frankly, no. No, we're not going to do that because we're a paranormal show where we cover topics of interest to us and that we think have some merit. There are some topics that people consider controversial, uh, conspiratorial, that, Oh, man, we're just not going to talk about it. And, of course, Gene, I mean, you and I both lived at a time when we watched with everybody else the moon missions on television, the Apollo missions. There is this ongoing discussion, and certainly on the Paracast forums, an ongoing thread about the idea that the moon landings were faked. And... We've got to draw the line in the sand somewhere. I personally, and I think I speak for both of us here. Sure. I think it's really, what's the word I, I should use here? It's not questionable. I just think it's sort of counterproductive, quite frankly, to get into a discussion about, you know, do we really go to the moon? Well, eh. We saw those Saturn V's take off. Where did they go? New Jersey? I mean, come on. Actually, certain- they went to
1: Las Vegas. They had a great gambling weekend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. You know, okay. while we were seeing pictures of
2: them on the moon, they were just living it up in Las Vegas. Yes. This is something. I mean, I have to tell you something. I'll tell you a little story now, and I'll tell our listeners a story. Because there were a couple of threads on Above Top Secret relating to nine eleven. Okay, and these threads were talking about the idea, the really just brain damaged idea that the planes that plowed into the towers, they were not actual airplanes, they were holograms. Which I was just deeply offended by. And I think Whoa, hey, whoa. Now
1: oh, that's gotta, a yeah. new one on me. I haven't heard the hologram. Oh, yeah. I heard we blew up number seven World Trade Center. I heard that maybe the terrorists who were involved in those plane crashes were in cahoots with the CIA or that we knew about it but didn't stop it for some reason because well, the president wanted to get into some kind hey, of conflict with Iraq.
2: Listen, I buy that last one. You know, Did the U.S. administration know that this that there was something going down and didn't stop it? Well, based on the PNAC documents, widely available on the Internet, years before the event actually happened, I'm not even going to question that one. So it's not like I, I, I debunk everything, Gene, but The idea that planes didn't plow into those buildings, that they were holograms, and that absolute moron who recently got tossed off of ATS, whose name I'm not going to mention on here because he just doesn't merit it. Jeff and I were blamed for his being tossed off. At least he blamed Jeff and I for his removal from ATS. But here's the thing. So there were a couple of threads on ATS about a piece of footage from a person named Scott Myers. And the threads ostensibly dealt with the idea that, well, uh, this footage has been hoaxed and Scott Myers doesn't even exist and this is all fake, And look at the CGI now I gotta tell you, I saw this and it told me Gene, so much about what goes on on the internet and the moronity of so many people who get on and express themselves I mean, freedom of expression is a great thing, it means that every person can get on and express themselves, whether or not they actually have anything to say, so here's the thing there were two threads questioning the existence of Scott Myers and people going oh yeah I can't find reference to him and oh gee he probably doesn't exist and the FBI probably invented him now. now here's the thing about this particular story I was deeply involved in that story because Scott Myers is not only a real person but was one of my closest friends for over 20 years and the afternoon Of September 11th, 2001, I was the first person that Scott could reach on his cell phone after that horrible morning. And Scott had had the clarity of mind to, after the first plane impacted, and let's qualify this his wife was laying in bed, eight months pregnant, with his daughter. His son, Taylor was basically supposed to go to school that morning, wasn't feeling well. So Scott didn't take him over to the public school, which would have put Taylor and Scott right down below the trade centers when the first plane hit. So thank goodness Taylor wasn't feeling well that morning for for whatever reason. Thank God for someone being sick. Absolutely. And that is, is, is situation, yes. Yeah. So first plane impacts. Scott grabs his camera and a tripod, sets it up on his rooftop deck he had a penthouse apartment at 12 John Street a penthouse apartment with Scott's he'd been there for many years I have stayed in that apartment I had stayed there for many years Scott no longer has the apartment but for many many years whenever Scott and Claire his wife would travel I would stay in that apartment and watch for them and and I have many wonderful memories from being up there but anyway he had a camera set up on a tripod pointed up at the towers the second plane comes in and impacts at that point, Scott obviously knew something very bad was happening. His wife was like completely melting down in the bedroom. The bedroom window, by the way, you're laying in bed, you look out the window, and you're looking right up, you were looking right up into the towers. I mean, it was, it was a block and a half away, Gene. So here's the thing. Scott gets a hold of me that afternoon. I'm the first person he could reach on the phone. He says to me, David, I've been able to encode and upload to... My wife's server, she was a, um, a physical therapist at Columbia University. They had some web space on Columbia's servers. He got that footage up online before pretty much most communications went out. Because, you know, when the Trade Center Towers came down, one of the biggest communications antennas in New York City was on top of the North Tower. So that came down with the tower. All right. This all happens and Scott says to me, you need, I need you to do two things, I need you to get a hold of the FBI, I can't. Please get them this footage and please let them know that we need help. Anyway, make a very long story, very short, I got on the phone with the FBI and showed them how to upgrade their QuickTime so they could see this footage. This footage ended up being um, the primary footage used to determine through scientific analysis how long the South Tower swayed after having been impacted by the plane. And I went on the ATS threads and stated that, hey, this is real footage. I know Scott Myers. He absolutely exists. And what is wrong with you people? And, you know, got the typical, some people on ATS were like, oh, thank goodness for being a voice of reason. Other people were like, oh, how can we believe you? How do we know you're not with the FBI? And I started getting emails from people, how how, how do we know you're not an operative? You know, did the FBI harass you for that footage? No. In fact, the FBI essentially took a dupe of the footage and left Scott the original, and nobody believed that either. But the bottom line is this, that's first-hand experience that I had that underscores the idea that just because you read it on the web doesn't make it true.
1: Welcome to the internet. Welcome to If you think rumors are bad enough in the newspapers, because there are a lot of newspapers that publish stuff that's kind of half-baked these days, well, Mm -hmm. the internet is, of course, the wild, wild west. Indeed it is. You don't need to have intelligence to be on the Internet. I'm not singling anybody out. All you need is $3, and you can set up your own website. $3 a month to set up your own website. That's how it goes. But I'll tell you something. In the next section of the PowerCast, we're going to have somebody who does not have an Internet site, does not have a personal computer, will never have a personal computer, and he still does his writing on an old typewriter. Well, there you go james w mosley the editor of saucer smear and cultural anthropologist christopher roth who is his designated replacement say that three times fast no all coming up next on the paracast
0: i have a feeling we're not in kansas anymore
1: we have william burns the publisher of ufo magazine on the line william can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine
0: Yes, I sure can. Here's an offer for your listener. We have a special five-issue introductory offer for first-time subscribers, 19.95 for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast.
1: So, Bill, how do they place the order?
0: People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com. They can also place orders over the phone at 1-888-U-F-O-M-A-G-A. Or they can write to us at Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295.
1: Bill, give us that contact information again.
0: It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, california 90295 or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com and they can also call one 888 MAGA, and they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card
2: gene and i love to hear from our listeners if you'd like to share your thoughts with us Send your messages to news at That's news at And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you've heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too.
3: You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast.
1: Jim Mosley, you are a legend in your own mind and also a legend legend in the UFO field. You've been doing it for many, many years. And I want to ask you now, people in the UFO field, we think of them as being somewhat technological. Yet, despite the fact that you've been doing this for decades, you don't have... 54 years, yes. 54 years, And you don't have a personal computer. That is correct. You do not have Internet access. That is correct. So knowing that both Internet access and personal, you don't even have a DVD player.
4: I'm getting a uh, a DVD player shortly, I think. I'm not sure yet. I may buy one in the next few days. Or you may not. Yes, well, there's (laughs) two possibilities uh, that are implied in my statement, yes.
1: Or you'll buy it and return it, so you could say you did it both ways. It's That's like you're possible. supporting the war before you're against it. Uh, who said that? <laughs> I don't want to get started. Supporting the war uh, before you were against it. Who said that? I don't. John know. Kerry said that in 2004.
4: Who? Yeah, I don't know John Kerry that well that he should know what my views are on any war. Uh, but seriously, Jim. Wh- uh.
1: Why have you never bought a personal computer? Why do you still use a typewriter? I just
4: don't want to bother with it. I don't think I have the background intelligence to deal with it without a great stress and strain and I don't really need it. I, uh, You've given me an opportunity to say something brief but uh, fairly important to me. Uh, the way I avoid having to be on the internet is that nice people, of whom Chris is one of the foremost, send me from the net anything that they see or can find that would be up my alley and would be material that i'd be likely to use for smear and there's another man who hopefully is listening his name is vince discus and he is contributing editor to saucer smear and he Basically, at no cost to me, sends me every two weeks a whole huge packet of material from the net that runs as many as 50, 60, 70 different items every uh, second week, and I choose from those. What interests me and, uh, use it and the rest I pass on uh, to other people that might be interested. So between those two people and to a lesser extent, uh, a few other people, I have no need to be on the net in order to get the material that I want for a softer smear.
1: In any case, now you've made a decision at some point of time to say, you know what, I'm not going to be here forever as much as we'd like to see you here forever. Oh, and I would too. Of course, but you won't be, and therefore you made a decision to have somebody replace you. That is correct, yes. So Christopher Roth is your designated replacement. How did you pick him?
4: Well, it just occurred to me he'd be... What I would consider an ideal person, certainly he has (laughs) the education I don't have, having a Ph.D., and I have uh, one and a quarter years out of a four-year degree, which is not quite uh, a total degree at all. So I believe that he probably has enough education to handle this and uh, won't get into this. I'm not sure if we've met, but I know he used to have a radio show show in the normal manner of ancient times, and I was probably on that at least once, and uh, we know each other from phone calls and conversation, and he just seems like a very cool guy, but the main thing is that he seems to have just about the same way of looking at these uh, UFO and paranormal cases as I do. He is open-minded, and he's very sincerely interested, but he does does not believe all of it and he's very cautious as to uh, what his uh, beliefs are and uh, I think we're very close to being on the same, same wavelength without having to force it and I think it's just a very nice thing and I'm delighted that he was interested when I asked him and he said that he had thought of that himself but hadn't wanted to ask me so it works out very well and I am sure that it will work out when the time comes
1: Well, let's talk about that. Christopher, welcome to the PowerCast Microphones. Thank you. And so I'm curious here, in what sense, how do you look at the UFO enigma? Now, of course, Jim is someone who has not had a lot of formal education in the college level, but then that didn't hurt Steve Jobs and look how much money he has. But you as a cultural anthropologist, how do you look at the UFO field? And first of all, what attracted you to it and how do you perceive it today?
5: Well, that's
3: a lot of questions in one, but I'll try to take them one by one. We'll and- add a few more
1: questions to it to make it even more complicated.
3: <laughs> well, i uh, it's hard to say what first attracted me to the subject. I grew up in Southern California in a household where these topics were considered fairly normal, and so I always had sort of an open mind about it. My father uh, worked peripherally with the space program, in the 1960s, and um, that was a time when a lot of people were a lot of people in the mainstreams of the culture were taking a very serious look at it in the way that their way that is not true right now, the, the laughter curtain, if you want to put it that way, had not really fallen to the extent that it has now. So I, I grew up with it. and uh, when I began to be exposed to cultural anthropology as an undergraduate, I I won't say that there was scholarship on the subject that existed that I was attracted to, but there were in allied fields. Religion studies and sociology had taken a look at this, and in particular one of my mentors as an undergraduate taught a course on millennial movements and included scholarly articles regarding uh, what later came to be known as the Heaven's Gate cult, but these You know, it existed first in the, I guess, early 1970s, and nobody called it Heaven's Gate, and then they went underground for 20 years. I don't know. Some of you listeners are probably familiar with the sequence of that. And in their first incarnation in the 1970s, they were infiltrated by a couple sociologists of religion who then proceeded to write about it. And this figured very prominently in one of the undergraduate courses that I took. And that sort of planted the seed that this is the kind of subject that a social scientist could pay attention to. And there are a number of other ways in for someone using the tools of anthropology, in particular the whole question of how a myth or a mythos, if you want to call it that, Spreads and propagates itself. Why different cultures respond to the idea of the UFO in different ways. And this was also around the time that the abduction phenomenon was getting a boost in the public eye from Whitley Strieber's book Communion. And this raised for me some really serious questions about whether something was really going on. And If there was a certain amount of, I don't know, you could say untruthfulness, a certain amount of mythical embellishment that was going on, what was the role of culture and folklore in that? And this seemed to be such a different situation from many of the traditional mythological systems that anthropology looks at. Here were real people in the contemporary period having experiences, not having a belief system in place that could readily explain it, and were they constructing a new belief system for it, or were they describing some aspect of reality that is not acknowledged? It seems a a ready-made topic for anthropologists to look at, but it's been a long time before that's started happening in the field of anthropology. It's sort of slowly gaining some traction as a topic.
2: Chris, let me ask you a quick question. When you use the word myth, are we talking about the definition of myth as a misrepresentation of reality or are we talking about myth as a traditional story that's passed down through generations that has elements of truth to it what's your definition of myth at that point
3: well that's a key question and that's a question that has been dodged by the mainstream of anthropology anthropologists tend to take the tack of i mean this is through most of the 20th century cultural anthropologists have tried to describe cultures from the natives' point of view, and that involves not taking a stand on whether certain beliefs are true or not. So that, for example, if if a certain group of people believe in ghosts, then that belief fits in with other institutions that they have, their religious systems, their kinship systems, or whatever. And you can understand how all those things intersect without taking a position on, on whether ghosts really exist and so that has led a lot of anthropologists to really dodge that question but when i talk about mythology i'm sort of taking the position that it might or not might or might not be true but it exists for the people who subscribe to it and the word mythology doesn't the way i use it i don't mean that it's necessarily true or necessarily untrue But that that it it exists sort of as a social fact. It's it's something that exists in the minds of of its believers and is real in that sense and has its own logic and so on in that sense. And then there's the further question of how can we find evidence for whether it's true or not.
1: Jim, okay, so obviously you pick someone here who has a very scholarly background. Now, does he have the same approach as you have with regard to Hoaxes? Has he perpetrated the kinds of hoaxes you perpetrated in your history in the UFO field? We're talking about the Straith letter and all that stuff.
4: Well, I don't uh, have any knowledge of uh, Chris having perpetrated hoaxes, and I'm not totally clear as to what his view about that would be. Uh, Mine is that they added to the... uh, the joy of the field and uh, kept up uh, public interest especially at times when it was lagging so uh, i find that as a handy excuse i would not know offhand just what chris's view is on that
3: no i've i've never committed any ufo hoaxes i'm also not an experiencer as far as i know i have to add that because people are always telling me i must be one Yes, uh, it's, a, it's a frequent response in the in the UFO subculture. When you say you're not an experiencer, people say, "Well, you probably are, but you don't know it." But as far as I know, I'm not. and I've never committed any hoaxes, but I do respect the trickster spirit that Jim brings to this subject, including the hoaxing. Many people have attacked Jim in the media, saying, essentially equating uh, UFO hoaxes with the worst kind of evil because people take the subject so seriously but to me one of the most if not the most important part of looking at the ufo phenomenon is sorting out the wheat from the chaff and hoaxes remind people and a lot of people in the field need reminding that there is a lot of chaff out there am i getting my metaphor right is the wheat the good stuff or is chaff the good stuff
2: no, you're exactly right.
3: That's There's very a lot well of chaff out there, and 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 people need to be reminded of that, and people need to keep their sense of humor about it too.
2: Today, whether you're in business or simply want to share something with friends or family, email and voicemail sometimes just aren't enough. That's why you should try GoToMeeting, a web conferencing solution that will revolutionize how you communicate with your business associates, family, and friends. The ability to host online meetings is an absolute must for today's business. With GoToMeeting.com, it's just like you're all in the same room. Unlimited meetings for one flat rate means you can meet as often as you want for as long as you need. Try it yourself, free for 30 days. Just visit gotomeeting.com forward slash tech podcasts. That's gotomeeting.com forward slash tech podcasts. Try
4: GoToMeeting free today. Hi, this is Brad Steiger, and I'm in the Paracast with Gene Steigberg and David Vietney. Join us as we explore new dimensions of thought.
5: You're
1: in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. Christopher Roth and James W. Mosley are with us. Jim, of course, is the editor and publisher of Saucer Smear. Christopher Roth is a Ph.D. He is the designated successor to Jim when jim decides to give up saucer smear or goes to the other life and can't do it from the afterlife is that how it goes jim
4: well i am not aware of anyone doing it from the afterlife if there is one so and yes you know,
3: and, and since you're not in the internet you can't do what timothy leary did which is set timed emails to uh, be sent to friends after your death do you, do you i you recall him, him
4: I, I, I recall him having uh, uh, done that uh, that was leary you say i think that was leary or, or was that robert anton wilson no it was i believe it was wilson yeah
3: wilson did that yeah
4: yeah i i knew wilson slightly he was a fascinating guy
2: absolutely one of my personal heroes actually chris i'm going to ask you a question about something you said before you referred to the environment in your home when you were growing up that the topics were taken relatively seriously because As you stated, the laughter curtain hadn't yet descended. Tell us what you mean by that.
3: Well, laughter curtain is a word that a lot of people in the UFO field use now to describe the approach that the media seems to take, which is that when, and you look at recent cases in the media, the O'Hare UFO sighting, the Stephenville, Texas sightings, the revelations that Dennis Kucinich is... uh, a UFO witness these things never come up in the media without being framed as a big joke
2: Got
3: it. and maybe in the case of, of some of the reports in the media that's warranted but one of the things that that does is it drives a lot of people away from the subject or may or creates a situation where a lot of people who are interested in the subject even people who take a skeptical approach are afraid to admit that they're interested in the subject
2: so a question a question for both you gentlemen about that for for you Chris and also for you Jim do you guys feel that that attitude about this topic on the part of the media is an aspect of the cultural environment or do you think that maybe conspiracy theorists have something behind their statement that this is uh, basically designed to discredit serious discussion of the topic
4: who first oh you go first
3: Okay. I have a different mind about that at different times. I'm leaning towards thinking that it's possible that there are forces, government forces, that are pleased that it's hard to take this subject seriously in a public way. But I also don't think that it would be necessary for that to... For, I don't think it would be necessary to condition the public, because I think that... That's sort of where we are as a culture, and I don't think that the government has the power to shape culture on that scale. And I think that if enough people became interested in it, then it would counteract any attempt to suppress the topic, especially in the in the age of the Internet. It was different in the days when you just had the three networks and your city newspaper to get your news from, and if they didn't cover it, you never heard about it.
2: Mm-hmm. Jim? Jim?
4: Yeah, well, I don't know how to put this, but uh, no matter how seriously I might take the subject of UFOs or how seriously Chris might take it, unfortunately, I have to admit that the subject lends itself to ridicule. In many aspects, it just, uh, if you don't have a serious interest to begin with, and if you are not really uh, willing to put a lot of time and effort into getting past the absurd aspects, most of which are manufactured or untrue, and if you're not patient enough to find out what part of all of this is really true or might very well be true. If you can't do all that, you're going to be turned off because, among other reasons, it does seem ridiculous. And I think that's the part of the problem. The secret keeps itself, as some people say.
1: Mm. The secret keeps itself. Would you expand on that?
4: Not easily. (laughs) No, I think it's self-explanatory. Okay. Well, that's
1: even more interesting. So we hear so much talk about disclosure. We've got to have some kind of disclosure. And, of course, your former nemesis, the late Donald Kehoe, (laughs) was very much involved in disclosure, the disclosure movement back in the 1950s. And
4: every few years we get more of this stuff. So well, now, especially in the last two or three years i I think it's just become uh, much greater than it ever was uh, before. We have this fellow bassett, and we have two or three others like him who uh, plan uh, conventions just around the theme of uh, disclosure, but as long as no one can really prove anything to the satisfaction of cynical scientists this disclosure movement is doomed to utter failure and uh... in spite of what they claim i don't think they're getting anywhere uh... there was a great effort made to get the uh, presidential candidates to make uh, statements uh... On the subject of saucers or answer questions uh, that were planted in the audience uh, from uh, uh, hardcore saucerites uh, asking these candidates what they thought of the subject. And most of them evaded the uh, question or gave humorous answers. And uh, I don't think anything uh, very much uh, was accomplished, largely because uh, the candidates are smart enough to know that if they took publicly a serious interest in saucers they'd lose a lot more votes than they would gain and i think that's the bottom line of it so i i think the disclosure people are Probably wasting their time. I don't know what Chris thinks of that, but uh, it's a lot of effort going into it, more and more, and and all uh, dredging up the same witnesses again and again. uh, Many of them from the military who have all kinds of intriguing things to say, and wonderful testimony and uh, personal experiences, and so on. But they can't prove a word of it, and. Intelligent people must be able to see through that.
3: I think that's absolutely true. I I think that if the government wants to keep a secret, it will keep a secret. And you see some of these demonstrations that are being held where you have, you know, seven UFO buffs in their 40s and 50s picketing in front of the White House, you know, that's just not going to have any effect whatsoever. And uh, the most important point being that, that a secret that is that high priority will be kept at all costs. Um, look how many secrets in terms of war and foreign policy are, are sat on. And as I think I said recently in a commentary that was printed in Saucer Smear, if you really wanted to uh, shake up the public with regard to this, you would have to do a sort of Pentagon Papers-style infiltration or, or or get some really good documentation that there is a cover-up and even then there would be a tremendous room for there would be tremendous room for argumentation over you know are these documents genuine are they planted are they somebody's hoax I mean the Pentagon Papers was a successful maneuver because it took place in a context where the whole public really was riled up on this issue but I don't think it's possible to Wake up the general public on 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 this issue at all.
4: I go further than uh, a lot of uh, believers would. Uh, In other words, I'm quite conservative on this subject. I do not believe there have been any landings at Roswell in particular, or anywhere else. Uh, Not any landings where alien technology or any other technology was uh, recovered. And I don't think that the uh, government has. Uh, physical proof of the existence of alien craft or whatever type of craft we're dealing with here in other words I think they are largely in the dark themselves certainly they have gun camera film and they have many clues and semi proofs that uh, they are not willing to share with the public and probably uh, never will but I think their main problem is that they don't want to discuss this because they have no complete answers themselves. It would be a total embarrassment to say there is something going on every so often in our skies that we are not able to do anything about and we don't even know exactly what it is. I think that is the problem rather than hardcore proof that they are holding back. I really don't think uh, when you really get down to it that there's anything uh, definitive to disclose. That is my point.
1: Okay, well let's talk about roswell for example we've had a number of shows on roswell we've had stanton friedman on we've had dennis balthaser we've had kevin randall and they as a group and we've had other people too talking about the subject they as a group all believe that something really happened in 1947 that one or more ufos crashed in the new mexico desert and you don't believe this why
4: well uh... I don't have the list in front of me, but all of the major witnesses, I mean all, and this runs to almost a dozen of the important witnesses over the years, have been discredited in in one way or another. I mean really discredited. And uh, there are, at this point in time, so many years later, mainly only uh, children of earlier witnesses and uh, people who were on the edge of the thing and heard this and heard that from someone at the time. In other words, uh, there's nothing left of the case as far as I'm concerned. And uh, I don't know uh, why uh, these so-called experts uh, go on with it. I like uh, reading in the matter that I told you about getting it through the mail, I like reading Kevin Randall's blogs because he is, at least in his own mind, trying to be very objective. And you may be familiar with these blogs. They come out quite often. And he'll take up the case of of Roswell again and again in one aspect or another. But even when you read his thing, in his effort to be fair, and he is making an effort, but with a slight bias uh, in favor of the case. You finish reading it, and you see that there is nothing there, nothing definitive. And if you really pinned him down, he would have to admit that. I've met Randall several times, and I've said to him, in effect, you know, you seem like an honest man. I hope I live long enough to reach the day when you yourself finally realize that there is nothing here, and you will become a skeptic on, on Roswell. And I still say that, and I think it's quite possible.
2: Well, Jim, I have to ask a question, though, about that. What are your feelings about Jesse Marcel's Jr.'s description of of the materials his father brought home that night that he says he handled.
4: There isn't anything overwhelming about his description, which no doubt is exaggerated, but the most interesting part there, now you're talking about one of the major witnesses, and I don't have the data in front of me, but Marcel Sr. was exposed rather horribly by Robert Todd a few years ago in something called the flop. quarterly. Which was a short-lived quarterly publication doing expos on uh, various saucer matters. I, I take it Todd uh, was a complete skeptic. But what he did, which is fascinating and, and annoys uh, Randall a great deal, because according to Randall, there uh, would be no legal way for Todd to have gotten the uh, military record of uh, Marcel Senior. But uh, however, he did get just that. Uh, the entire military record of Marcel Sr. and in it uh, there are claims that Marcel Sr. made that are provably untrue and others that are provably grossly exaggerated so uh, Sr. goes down the drain along with the other major witnesses
1: Hey, listeners, did you know that Fate is the oldest and best-known publication on the paranormal? Well, since 1948, Fate has provided their readers with fascinating in-depth articles on subjects like psychics and spiritualists, ghosts and hauntings, UFOs and aliens, as well as readers' true personal mystical experiences. For under $20, you can keep up with all the latest information. To subscribe, call now at one 800 728 Two seven three zero, or visit Fate's website at www.fatemag.com. That's one eight hundred seven two eight two seven three zero, or www.fatemag.com. So what are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You are with Jesus
5: and
1: During in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. Of course, we have Jim Mosley, the editor and publisher of Saucer Smear, and Christopher Roth, a cultural anthropologist who covers UFOs and is the designated successor as the editor and publisher of Saucer Smear. Someday, and we hope it doesn't come soon. So let's talk about those specific things. About, for example, Marcel Sr., in what sense is he discredited?
4: Oh, I don't have all of that. It, he exaggerated his military record. He had himself uh, flying uh, combat missions that he didn't fly and so on. I mean, I uh, am not in a position to give you details on, on all of that. I just know that it was accepted by people that read it as a, a very powerful put down of Marcel Sr., as a man whose word you could not take. and And that's not good. Uh, since he is a key Roswell witness and now, now the only one left of uh, the major witnesses is the uh... undertaker of uh, what's his name now glenn dennis Glenn Dennis, I believe, you can still do as I did a few years ago. You can go out to the Roswell Museum. Glenn Dennis is one of the directors there, and you can interview him, and he will rave and rant. He was very kind to me. Uh, I got a kick out of it. He said, well, you've come on a bad day. I'm very busy. I really can't talk to you very much. And he sat down, and he ranted on uh, in no particular sequence the different stories that he's told. Over the years, and he said, but now i got to go off and do something else, and he went off for a few minutes and came back and ranted some more, and he spent a whole afternoon with me, uh, not saying anything he hadn't said before. He has had some problems, the worst of which was the nurse that worked at the base there, uh, who has had different names, one was Naomi something, it has been proven, uh, I believe, uh, by popular Mechanics, which is a strange magazine to get a saucer serious expose printed in, but nevertheless quite a few years ago, they did a a very careful study and found out in effect that nurse never existed. What they did, among other things, they went to a nursing home where where the last surviving nurse of that year, 1947, was living, and she was frail, I suppose, and had some physical reason to be in the nursing home, but she was still in sound mind, and they gave her all of the uh, uh, information from Glenn Dennis about this nurse, and she, too, said that there was no such nurse there, period, with, with any name and no such event such as what the nurse was supposed to have have witnessed. And and it goes down the line, I am not able from memory to tell you the details of how, when, and why each of the major Roswell witnesses crashed, but they did. They absolutely did. Jim,
2: here's the thing. Now, I have to to respectfully disagree. Your statement about Marcel Sr. in no way impacts... Uh, the validity of Jesse Marcel Jr.'s description of the materially he held. We had Jesse Marcel Jr. on the Paracast. If there's one thing, without personally knowing the man, i want to say about him, is that he seemed to be absolutely honest in what he was describing. He had no reason.
4: I what is so marvelous about the material? It, it went back to its previous shape when it was bent. And, and, and what else?
2: No, actually, I'm thinking specifically of the I beam and the symbols on it. That's the piece that really caught my interest. That's the part that I thought was really fascinating and that doesn't really corroborate with anything else that would have been retrieved from, let's say, the crash. Of a balloon.
4: Don't you know the story of the symbols? That is one of the most interesting aspects, and, and that is something I know a little bit about. Uh, Charles Moore who was still alive, he was the technician uh, on the uh, Mogul balloon project. And his Mogul balloons went out with what you could call symbols, but they weren't like that. Uh, But nevertheless, they were the same colors, about the same size. They were on the I-beam. What it was, it was a repetition of several flower uh, designs in pastel colors. And we know uh, the place in in New York uh, uh, the factory where uh, this tape was manufactured with these uh, flower designs on it and it was used for what other purpose precisely, I don't know, but it was on these I-beams and on on these balloon uh, configurations and that seems to be the origin of the symbols thing. I don't think that's nearly good enough to make a a case for an interplanetary saucer. the thing that's always oh, oh, excuse
2: me, excuse me. No one said interplanetary saucer, so I certainly.
4: Well, didn't. any kind of unknown craft. The same difference. So I mean, uh, there is a basis to the to the symbols, uh, and and that is it. And
2: where can uh, we see where can we see samples of this tape or paper printed with these symbols that, of course, oh. are are, in, are no way correlated to embossed symbols on a. Piece of metal, but go ahead.
4: Well, I mean that's all there is uh, to it. It's it's been discussed at, at great length over and over again in in the literature. Uh, if I'd known we were going to do an in depth thing on Roswell, you know, I would have uh, come prepared. But I I think that's it. Uh, there's nothing about the uh, fragments that, that uh, Marcel saw that are overwhelmingly interesting, and nothing about the symbols. I mean, uh, are you going to have a Craft that is as frail as that, made of balsa wood and uh, paper mache, basically. Uh, I don't care if it's supposed to come from another planet or another dimension. It's not going to make it from where it started to get into the atmosphere to have an opportunity to, to crash. I, I find it ludicrous, to tell you the truth. I'm not sure where paper mache and balsa would come up, but. Okay. Well, 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 there was balsa wood and some kind of paper. in in, in this wreckage that they found. It it was all spindly stuff. Now, if you want to say there was a substitution made in uh, the general's office, I don't think so.
1: Well, you know what, I'm going to ask, Chris, do you agree with Jim about Roswell?
3: Jim is more knowledgeable about the details of the case. I tend to lean towards thinking that there was not necessarily something, well, either interplanetary or of that Caliber of strangeness about it. And one of the things that's always puzzled me is how much attention has been given to this particular case among all the other cases that, that there have been that involve uh, purported crashes and, and purported beings and, uh, and physical traces. There have been so many other cases, and I'm, I'm really often vexed why this particular case, especially since you have a lot of the problems with the witnesses especially since you have this sort of back-and-forth on the part of the government, why, why this particular case has had, such, has had such staying power. Certainly, something was intended to be covered up, They're going back and forth as to whether it was a crash saucer, whether it wasn't. There's something that was being covered up. But it was the Cold War, and lots of things were being covered up, and even things that weren't necessarily of spectacular national interest, th- 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 things that weren't necessarily big secrets, were being covered up energetically out of a kind of cold war paranoia. You know, and I, and I think that that accounts for a lot of the mystery and the confusion and the mixed messages that the government was sending out re- regarding this case. But I, I'm, not, I'm not sure what it was, and I'm not sure there might have been some other reason why it was such a, a, a secret that it was necessary to put out a crashed disc cover story as the as the first resort. There might have been some sort of inhumane treatment that was going on as part of whatever came down in the desert and, and that that might account for coming up with absolutely any cover story rather
4: than right. well you know it just uh, it does seem to uh, not perfectly but quite well uh, fit the description of a mogul balloon, but people don't like to hear that because the government said that, and so therefore it can't be true. But what if it is a mogul balloon? It seems reasonable, and uh, Carl Flock wrote a uh, definitive uh, book on the subject of Roswell, and he, uh, at that point, accepted the mogul balloon uh, explanation. I don't see a problem.
2: Well, speaking personally, I've always found the Roswell case to be problematic on a number of levels, mostly the fact that so much time has passed since it occurred. But um, speaking about crash incidents, I mean, I personally find something like the Varginha episode in 1996 in Brazil to be far more compelling, where you have many eyewitnesses you have creatures that supposedly the U.S. military came down, retrieved craft, retrieved creatures. You have a number of people who have gone on record. And yet because of the language barrier, because of the fact that this is not an American-centric case, it really hasn't received a huge amount of attention from uh, from American researchers. The only person who's really paid any attention to it is uh, is Dr. Roger Lear, who wrote a book about it. But you know, Lear aside, there's been a tremendous amount of coverage on the part of uh for example aj gavard's magazine um down in brazil of this case this is a major case where clearly something seems to have happened and and there is extensive u.s military involvement either I'm not, of it. It. I'm not
4: familiar i'm not i'm not sufficiently su- uh, familiar with it to uh no. to comment on it but uh you're right that it hasn't gotten uh... much attention uh, one other final thing about roswell uh... again this is not provable but it is my understanding from s- several different things that i've read uh... statements by uh... many Roswellians or whatever these people are called that uh... this crash uh, that we're talking about occurred, it was a, a little blip, in, I guess, an other, otherwise dull town. For two or three days, maybe four or five days, people thought about it, talked about it, and then it was forgotten. It was totally forgotten, uh, as if it were not important, you might say, until Friedman and Moore... And others of his ilk came along starting in 1978 which is a long time later and then came the first book and then the second book and on and on and it grew until it became a cottage industry in the town of Roswell and we don't need to wonder why it's persisted in that way because there's big bucks in it and it's getting bigger there as we have said in smear you know there's new projects on the drawing board Uh, one will be a, a theme park of some sort that includes an indoor roller coaster that simulates an alien abduction. I hope I live long enough to go out there when that's built, because I don't think I'm going to ever have a real abduction. That would be uh, the second best thing. And, and then there's another thing that they're going to do. It's just a huge complex uh, on the edge of town somewhere with a huge uh, theater and a tremendously large hotel. Hotel and swimming pool and uh, lecture halls and you name it. I mean, these are multi-million-dollar projects. I don't know if they're going to come to pass or not, but I mean, the Roswell incident. Uh, no one can disagree that it has turned a very ordinary little town. And I've been there several times. It is very ordinary, <laughs> and uh, they've got something to live for now. And and even the people in town, which is probably the the majority, I would assume that don't believe in it as a uh, important event, nevertheless are delighted and they're all for it and they encourage it eagerly because there is a whole lot of money in this.
2: I think it's important, though, that when you make the statement, Jim, that you don't feel or you don't believe that there have been any actual you know, episodes
4: of UFOs crashing, I None think. that are provable. Uh, you see, again, it's rumor, legend, innuendo, and uh, maybe. You know, and, and that is the same problem in the whole field. Uh, unless you can prove something, you're just speculating, and that's the horror. That's why the majority of the American people are interested in UFOs, I think, and uh, put some credence in it. But it doesn't get any further than that because there is no proof why are we having this show? Do we have uh, shows on uh, you know uh, the atomic bomb to find out if it's real or not? Uh, we know that it is. On sauces the situation is quite different.
2: So what is your feeling then about, uh, about anecdotal evidence? Testimony of one person, five people, five hundred people, a thousand people. What's your threshold for how many people have to convey?
4: It's the quality of the evidence, not the quantity. That's the problem. You know what? One of my favorite cases is also from Brazil, and I wrote this up in Smear. This is very unknown, apparently, in this country. I just recently came across a list of the 100 top cases of all times, and I'm doing a big thing on that in the next Smear, March, but that's another story. One case that is not mentioned at all, and and maybe Chris has heard of it, or maybe he hasn't, I wrote it up in Smear briefly, just initially. Two or so ago, and and that's the case in uh, Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. There were apparently two men who were radio hams, among other things, uh, and they were saucer fiends or investigators or whatever. No one it's knows the, exactly it's what the, they... The two dead guys, right? The two dead men? Well, well yes. Uh, but just give it a little bit more space here, uh, they eventually made an uh, appointment to go to a mountain near the city uh, I take it in a sparsely populated area compared to the city itself to be at a certain place at a certain time to meet these beings that they were in touch with by radio and leaving out some of it eventually a week or two later I think their bodies were found in a very peculiar way lead mass uh, over their faces and I believe like toiletries laid out next to them uh, as if they had uh, intended to take these items on a trip with them but uh, of course that's just speculation the Brazilian police didn't want to get involved in the saucer angle, and they treated it like any murder case. It obviously was a murder case, and it was never solved.
1: You know what, Jim? I'll tell you what. We're going to do our break now, and then we're going to leave a cliffhanger, and then we're going to ask you more about it in a
6: moment. Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares
2: You're in the paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next.
1: Back with Jim Mosley, editor-publisher of Saucer Smear, and Christopher Roth, a cultural anthropologist who's been studying UFOs and the impact. And, of course, now we get to this particular case, Jim, that you talked about during the first hour.
4: These men, well, they didn't disappear. They were eventually found, as I said, on this mountaintop. small mountain uh, with lead masks over their face obviously murdered. I believe if I recall correctly they didn't find the cause of death which is a problem and certainly not the people that did it and interestingly uh, the mountain uh, or hill whatever this was uh, where these bodies were found was a location where local people living in that area had You could almost say the habit of seeing craft, unknown craft, landing and taking off and passing by over a long period of time. It was known uh, apparently in in Brazil at certain places at certain times, UFOs have become so commonplace that the average laborer, you might say, uh, who's busy with his own life and his own work, almost stops looking and stops thinking about it because it's not a part of making a living and it's just part of the environment. That was the kind of area that this happened in. And uh, there's no proof of anything, but when you have dead bodies, at least it's not just a rumor. I find that a fascinating case. Are you familiar with that, Chris?
3: I remember reading about it, but I didn't remember all the details that you're saying just now. But there is a lot of remarkable stuff that comes out of Latin America in particular, and that is a part of the world where you do not have this kind of laughter curtain and where this kind of stuff gets into the mainstream media. People feel comfortable reporting it to the authorities and so on. And there's a lot of rich material that comes out of there, but there's this language barrier which uh, prevents ufologists that don't have any Spanish from really being aware of how much there is out there
4: well you know what happened in those early days this was 67 that this happened and i still had a press clipping service that sent me stuff in english from england and uh... stuff in spanish from south america and interestingly if it was from brazil it would somehow get reprinted in spanish language uh... media in in the countries that speak spanish and then it would be said to me i never had anything sent to me in Portuguese, but a whole lot of stuff in, in Spanish and in French, which I can also read from France and thereabouts. So I uh, was able to get my hands on some wonderful early cases that other people didn't see. And I passed them on to an organization named Afro, which is long defunct, and they used them for their profit in writing uh, books on the subject. And not only never gave me credit, but never thanked maybe that's a whole different story well just
2: gentlemen, just FYI uh, that case is described in Rather extensive detail in Jacques Vallee's book, Confrontations.
3: Oh well, but, then I, I did read. It's been years yeah. since I read that. I'll take another look at that
2: one. Yeah, yeah. the the case is described in rather extensive detail, where Vallee actually spoke to a number of the witnesses who knew these gentlemen, and he spoke to the police and the authorities. And and yeah, Jim, it basically ended up as one big mystery. These the the death uh, the cause of death, if I remember correctly, was not determined. As, as far as the the Latin American situation. What a lot of people don't seem to even realize is that right now, as we do these interviews, there is a tremendous UFO flap unfolding in Argentina, of all places, and there has been for a number of months now. Part of the the problem, I think, with that is that, for example, you look at the 90s and the huge flap that was going on in Mexico City. And uh, you insert the Jaime Moissan element. And, and unfortunately, what I think this does is it creates a, a kind of a, an air of sensationalism that uh, makes it problematic to discuss a number of these cases in a serious way where Moissan has been involved in some of the most ridiculous stuff. Unfortunately, at the same time, he's become the go to guy to send a lot of really compelling video footage to. So, this is the, the I think, the, the huge problem in this field where you have valid data mixed in with nonsensical fairy tales and the whole thing gets stirred together and what comes out of the other end is essentially poison
4: yeah there's a, a good point there and plus uh... with modern technology which as you have pointed out i know nothing about but uh... these uh, videos are all subject to question i think you can fake just about anything these days and uh, uh... there's very little proof involved in any of the things you're talking about
2: well on a more serious note not only can you fake things it gets far more problematic than that. If you would, you can take legitimate photographs of legitimate paranormal things, and you can tamper with those photographs as to call into question the veracity and validity of those photographs. Yeah. Who
3: would be doing that and
2: why? Yeah. That's a... That's a fascinating question, gentlemen. Um, What I can tell you is that uh, one of the uh, strongest friends of our show, Jeff Ritzman, and and I did uh, a lot of research and analysis work on photographs that came out of the O'Hare episode. We were able to debunk all of the photographs with the exception of one. And that one photograph, well, let's, uh, and we've talked about it on the show before, but I'll just recap for, for both of you. Um, what what ended up happening was that we determined that this one particular photograph was genuinely interesting and we felt that it was actually highly likely that it was a genuine photograph of a ufo but we also discovered in it a bit of tampering which we basically uh, came up with the idea that it had been put in there this tampering so as if any legitimate image analyst declared the photo to be genuine that this bit of tampering could be used to effectively sabotage the credibility and the professional But who who would do that and why? Yeah, that and, is and, the and, magic and, question. That and, is and, and an and excellent question.
3: Why not question. just why not just not release the photo at all?
2: Well, you see that is a really good question that I wish I had the answer to. Why release the photo?
4: Maybe or, or, to, yeah. well, to who who did the tampering the one that took the photo or someone else?
2: I'm guessing the tampering happened after the photo was
4: taken. By uh, disinformation agents or what sort of people? You tell me. Well, it, it I don't almost, know. well you brought it up.
2: Uh, you want me to give you an answer I don't have? <laughs>
4: All right. I, uh, I
2: can tell you the result. Look, you know, uh, when you do scientific analysis, very often what you have in your hand is a result and you try to backtrack and discover how that result was produced. That doesn't mean that you can. And if, if I, I understand exactly what you're saying, who would have done that? Well, that's the $64 million question. Who indeed? I don't it's have an almost answer. As
3: though It's almost as though someone is trying to send two different messages to two different groups of people to, on the one hand, release information about the reality of what happened to some group of people while at the same time preventing it from being something that's publicly recognized.
2: That's uh, as good a theory as I've heard
3: but i I certainly can 't explain it to hear to hear what you describe it's it 's an odd way of behaving I mean just, yes. just sitting on the information from the get go sounds more of a rational approach to something that you want to keep secret.
2: right. We had heard reports that there was a pilot in a cockpit that was able to get a photo of this thing before it was gone. We had heard that, and then this image appeared mysteriously in our email boxes, so the question is. You know, where did it come from? We can't answer that question. I don't...
4: Was the photo printed uh, elsewhere, or it only went to you, or what? uh,
2: The photo was actually sent to a website called abovetopsecret.com, where Jeff and I are the in-house image processing analysts. So the photo was sent there anonymously, Hmm. and it was immediately handed over to us, Jeff Ritzman and myself. We spent at least 48 hours in deep analysis on this picture, looking at it very carefully and found a number of very interesting things, really interesting things. But again, we found essentially the equivalent of a signature that would, again, be a clear mechanism to if, let's say Jeff and I had come out and said publicly, we think this is a legitimate image. We looked at a half a dozen, maybe eight images. Uh, The other seven were instantly discredited. they were instant fabrications. We could tell that right off the bat. This one image, on the other hand, wasn't. This one image was really fascinating and seemed to really closely match the description of what had been seen. It seemed to be taken from the cockpit of an airplane. We had heard that there was a good chance that there had been a pilot that had snapped a picture of this thing. So, let's follow the train of events. Pilots an airplane snaps a picture from the cockpit of something he's seeing out the window. What does he do do with that photo? Well, does he hand that photo to his superiors? Does he hand it to his best friend and say, here, send it to ATS? I'm guessing he hands the photo to his superiors. I could be wrong about this, but that would be my guess. Where does it go from there? How does it go potentially from being handed off to his superiors at United to getting sent into above top secret? That's the magic question that I don't have it. I wish I had an answer for. I don't.
4: Well, you know, uh, as i said i'm lucky enough because of this fellow dishes uh, and chris and others to get a whole lot of stuff from the internet i don't remember seeing any photos uh... of uh, the o- o'hare saucer uh, there may have been some that were p- printed somewhere but i i never saw one
2: there is a thread on above top secret dot com where jeff and i publicly released a bunch of our findings about the image but not the very last bit, not the signature that we discovered. We did not release that. We did that for a reason. We were curious to see if any other images would surface that would have similar tampering, that would would confirm or corroborate for us that this, in fact, was indeed something that would have happened to the image. No other photos have surfaced, which, by the way, has been a very strong source of frustration for Jeff and myself, as well as the rest of the above top secret and paracast form communities and we're very frustrated that we had heard that a number of people have been taking photographs and none of them had surfaced but you know at this point i'll qualify it. it is absolutely true that photographic evidence and at this point i'll go on a limb and say video evidence neither of those things should be accepted even in a court of law for a common uh, justice case any kind of even like a like a like a, a a basic lawsuit or a uh, you know any like you, a small claim suit photographic evidence is no longer tenable period and that should be the law.
4: yeah, I think you're right
3: even yeah. even analog
2: photographs there is no such thing as analog photographs anymore. every analog photograph, whether it's a, a print, a negative, a slide, can very easily be digitized with full retention of grain emulsion and and essentially replicated and even shot back out to film, so there is no such thing as analog film anymore that is that is now an antiquated notion.
1: I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band, they work just like memory buttons in your car, a sleep timer, an alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting techbroadcasting.com slash crane That's techbroadcasting.com slash crane to order the CC Radio Plus for one sixty four ninety five, and that includes free ground shipping, and a free C-Crane catalog. Place your order today.
3: We want to hear from you.
0: If you have a comment or question about the podcast... Send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene in
3: data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com.
1: you're in the PowerCast with gene steinberg and david Biedney. we are not antiquated because we have jim mosley and christopher
2: roth to regale us with their knowledge david well gene i was sort of wondering chris in the work that you've done and i was reading that chapter in the book that you contributed to which is actually a rather fascinating book et culture anthropology and outer spaces in you looking at this phenomenon and how it ties very closely to the uh, cultural evolution of our species. What are your thoughts about similarities that we find looking at, for example, things like the abduction phenomenon, which is by many considered to be a a rather uh, recent development, but yet as we look back in, in, in cultural history, we find things like fairies and the good people um, in mm-hmm. the U.K., we find these um, these similarities in terms of these small beings that seem very interested in things like human children. What yeah. lines, what, what connections can you draw between these things?
3: Well, that's a very interesting series of connections, and one of the things that makes it interesting is that people on both sides of the discussion of whether it's real or not have pointed to the same connections and used mm-hmm. it to support different arguments. So on the one hand, you have professional folklorists who have pointed out the similarities between, let's just say, traditional European lore and stories about little people who kidnap humans. Similarities between that and the modern abduction phenomenon. And you can say, well, that just shows that this new phenomenon is just an extension of that old folklore tradition. So it's not true. On the other hand, you have people like Jacques Vallée, and uh, I think he was actually there first Before the people from the professional discipline of folklore Pointing out these connections And, and coming to the opposite, opposite conclusion And saying that actually is evidence For the fact that those might not be just stories And then you have uh, Eddie Bullard who is, uh has written for folklore journals But who is himself not sort of part of the academic establishment And he is sort of played it both ways in different publications of his. It's very interesting to read the stuff he's written for the Journal of American Folklore and the stuff he's written for the Journal of UFO Studies. But I think this raises, and you can find other examples than just the abduction slash fairy connection, this raises some really interesting questions and I think that there has been some naivety on both parts and this is one of the problems that I have with the approach that ufologists who favor the ET hypothesis or something of that caliber of strangeness, the approach that they've taken to ancient folkloric material. And uh, you see this especially with Zechariah Sitchin, for example, and that is to take it too much at face value and not to give enough room for the possibility or even the reality that sometimes there are stories that have absolutely no basis in fact. You have to imagine that whatever amazing things might be out there in the universe that there are also traditions that describe things that didn't actually happen. And the trick is to have some kind of diagnostic for knowing the difference. And this is something that a lot of folklorists have looked at. For example, you have many, and in my own fieldwork, I I work with Native American groups in, in Western Canada, and that's a part of the world where there are oral traditions that are purported to be true historical tellings by the, by, by the people who have uh, inherited these oral traditions, and there have also been attempts to try to uh, test the validity of whether these traditions are true, and many of them are about the migration of different uh, clan groups and how they split and merge and so on, but some of them also describe supernatural events, and there's a rule of thumb that folklorists have come up with, which is that... Oral tradition is is more reliable when it describes more recent events or more purportedly recent events. So if there's a, a, a folklore tradition about something that happened a few years ago, it is more reliable in terms of its content than something that purports to describe the creation of the world or the creation of the human race. Just on the sheer level of the introduction of alterations in the events over the centuries that it's transmitted. And also that the more recent events and the more reliable events are not very streamlined stories. That is, they're not sort of molded into sort of nice, tidy stories that have a lot of literary conventions in them. They're sort of, the more reliable ones about more recent events, they're sort of scrappier and they have loose ends and there are parts in them that don't make sense. And one of the interesting things about fairy lore and around the turn of the century, uh, turned turn of the last century, E.Y. Evans Wentz was a, a scholar of religion who, who gathered a lot of these stories from the areas of the mm-hmm. Celtic peoples. Mm-hmm. A lot of these stories were of those very untidy, scrappy, incoherent at times stories. They weren't smoothed over into tidy narratives. And I think that that, in a way, makes them, makes them more compelling. And I, I put a lot less credence in some of the older narratives that ufologists have approached, in particular the biblical and the, and the ancient Middle Eastern material. Those stories have had centuries, if not millennia, to become shaped by political and cultural and, and literary considerations into the form right. that we find them now.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, that's the biggest problem of all, and that's finding the truth in this ancient material. You know, people talk about ancient astronauts, gods from outer space, God, period, and we have no idea just how true that information is.
3: Another thing that is is very useful to look at is to what extent does this supposed experience fit into or not fit into the beliefs that are already in place? I mean, one of the stories from the part of the world where I do my field work, there was an anthropologist in the late 19th to early 20th century, and he was in British Columbia with uh, doing field work with a native group there. And the anecdote that he tells in his in his uh, in his memoirs is that they were riding along on a boat. He was riding along with two Indians that he was working with during his field work, and they were sure that they saw on the far bank of the river up ahead. Uh, the silhouette of a supernatural creature that they believed in. I forget exactly what what type of creature they they thought it was, some sort of of supernatural monster. It wasn't a Sasquatch. And the anthropologist said, you know, I really don't think so. That looks just like a tree stump. And they got closer and were able to inspect it closely, and it wasn't moving. It uh, was a tree stump. And the conclusion that the two Native people came to was that, well, of course, these creatures are shapeshifters. And as soon as we got right. close enough that we could discover him, he turned himself into a tree stump.
1: Or he was a tree stump to begin with.
3: Or <laughs> he was a tree stump to begin <laughs> with. But you see that here's, here's a situation where you have two people with two radically different belief systems looking at this. And they each interpreted it in a way, two different belief systems and three people, and they each interpreted it in a, in a way that fit their their own cultural preconceptions. And traditional societies tend to operate that way. You have a whole community where everyone in the town or in the village believes in little people, believes in fairies. And anomalous events that happen are going to get interpreted that way. And in the next generation, when no one's around who's really there for it, there isn't going to be a trace of evidence that anything else happened. Everyone is just going to know that that's exactly what it was. And when we can see, and we can see that kind of thing operating over the short term, and I think that makes us really wonder about stories that describe events centuries ago when they're passed down orally.
1: Well, you know, the thing I have a problem with is that we can't even agree what happened yesterday. If you look at all the talking heads on TV or listen to them on the radio, they all have different interpretations. So, of course, they will over time agree to the ideal interpretation, which may be in variance with the truth, if there is a truth. So I can well understand if we can't figure out what happened yesterday, what happened 20 years ago, what happened with the Kennedy assassination, what happened in Roswell in 1947, what happened with the Battle of Los Angeles in 1942 the 1897 phenomenon all this stuff how the heck are we going to know is that part of your job to figure out what's happening
3: in a way you know and i i i, I in my chapter i looked at a little part of it but i want to see something else about the abduction phenomenon and folklore and that is that the, the abduction phenomenon is different from old fairy legends and and not just legends but actual reports of fairy encounters in that modern abductees most of them at the beginning at least, don't claim to know what it is. And they change their minds a lot, and they entertain different theories. There's no belief system that it fits neatly into, and there's a lot of variation in it. And I think that that's one of the most important differences and one of the most important things to look at, that kind of variability. Now, there's a little bit of a problem with that because the UFO subculture and UFO investigators are working very hard to build a belief system that can immediately envelop someone that comes forth with an anomalous experience, let's say an abduction type experience. And you see this not only starting in the 1980s with people like Bud Hopkins and also with hypnosis, which I think is an extremely unreliable way to get at the truth Mm -hmm. and an extremely reliable way to uh, encourage confabulation. And also I think that the The internet has had a kind of—I mean, I love the internet in many ways, and it's been great for ufology in some ways. But it has kind of an insidious effect. In the 1980s, for example, if someone had some sort of anomalous experience—and let's not, for the time being, define what that is—but some sort of anomalous experience, that person will make very slow, groping attempts to try to come to terms with with what it was. And most of it will be in the form of talking to people, reading books, maybe going to uh, a meeting or so. Robert Monroe, in his book about out-of-body experiences, describes what it's like in the 1970s when people try to get in touch with, I forget what he calls it, the sort of underground subculture and people do it by reading whole books and taking time to digest it and and it's a a very slow deliberate kind of intellectual enterprise that people used to undertake and now if someone has an experience like that the next thing they'll do is they'll get up in the morning and they'll google whatever it was that they thought came into their bedroom and then they'll have immediately this full-blown worldview are uh, thrown in their face which it's very easy to get sucked into
1: so they basically will then take whatever they experienced and alter it to fit the facts they read on google
3: but some people will some people will and this was already happening to some extent i mean this always happens to some extent i remember in the in the late 1980s i was going to a lot of ufo interest group meetings in the in oregon and, and different investigators would come and speak and one investigator was talking about how amazing it was that different investigators, this was long before the age of the Internet, so people were just communicating by letter or phone, you know, different investigators. And different people who work with abductees around the country were coming up with the same thing, that people were reporting these praying mantis beings coming into their uh, homes. These people didn't even know each other, and this stuff wasn't in the media. So where were they getting it? There must really be these uh, uh, praying mantis beings. Now, as, as uh, Martin Kottmeier has shown, and he's someone who's, who's done a lot of great work in sort of tracing how elements from popular culture find their way into the UFO phenomenon and vice versa, of course, Pregmandises did make a cameo appearance in Communion. So at a, in a way, this had sort of been introduced into the uh, UFO subculture, because that's the one book that everyone reads. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, so that way it spread the concept. <laughs>
0: This is Timothy Green-Beckley, otherwise known as Mr. UFO, reporting live for the Conspiracy Journal. And we have a special offer for the listeners of the Paracast. Want to receive our publications for free? Conspiracy journal and Bizarre Bizarre sent to you via snail mail, and all you have to do is email me at Mr UFO at webtv dot net. That's Mr UFO at TV dot net, and we'll send you two of the most exciting publications. But we do need your actual address because these are physical publications, and you'll enjoy all the latest articles by some of the leading researchers in the field, as well as up to date information on the latest book and videos and it's all for free or drop us a line mr ufo at WebTV.net.
1: hey there listeners have you ever thought about hosting your website you know where you can actually host your blog or your web page well i'll tell you where to go host i can host i can and as a matter of fact they provide all our hosting too for this site and guess what their price starts at only seven dollars a month how could you go wrong it's reliability and speed speaks for itself. And that's why we're able to provide you with this radio show that you're listening to right now. It's Host I Can. Give them a try. You'll be glad you did. To learn more about Host I Can, go to this website, techbroadcasting.com. That's techbroadcasting.com slash host. Techbroadcasting.com slash host. And you'll learn more about Host I Can.
2: You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen
5: next.
1: you're in the power with gene steinberg and david Bietney. jim Mosley, editor publisher of saucer smear joins us a new friend of the show christopher roth a cultural anthropologist who has a phd and therefore reigns supreme over the rest of us and jim before we persist with this please tell our listeners how one can get a copy of saucer smear
4: oh my goodness i thought you would never ask Yes, well, it's not that hard You communicate with me uh, either by telephone or more normally by mail, uh, that old-fashioned thing. I have a post office box, and it is Box 1709 in the town of Key West, Florida, 33041. And uh, you ask uh, to get on our mailing list, and we'll take it from there.
1: That's simple enough. And Chris, do you have a way for people to
4: contact you?
3: Let's see what would be the best. I'm trying to think which email to use. Best way is the, is my email address uh, c f as in Frank R O T H at Earthlink dot net. That's one word e a r t h l i n k dot net.
1: People are still on Earthlink. Teach me. People are still on Earthlink. Hmm. <laughs>
3: Uh yeah, I guess I'm not as outdated as Jim, but maybe in, in your opinion I'm a little bit outdated for being with Earthlink. But I do have I do have D S L so I'm not I should say a thing though in, in defense of of Jim and the comments that were made at the beginning of this broadcast about him, you know, making his newsletter on the manual typewriter and so on. Nonetheless, even though technologically saucer smear is, is primitive in its format and in its spirit it has been a pioneer in that it anticipated what we now think of as the blog. In all but its immediacy, it is it does have the spirit and format of a blog. So in that respect, Saucer Smear has always been very much ahead of its time.
1: And, Chip, do you even know what a blog is?
4: Well, absolutely, yes. Uh, a blog is apparently a repetitive... Thing uh, that uh, certain researchers put on the net where they just ramble uh, about uh, their opinions. Uh, many blogs are boring and horrible, but one <laughs> of the few uh, that I enjoy is, is, is the one that I, I mentioned by uh, uh, that Roswell fellow. Uh, his Kevin name. Randall. Kevin Randall you
3: know. and one of the advantages of blogs is that many people who have them feel that they need to put something on every day even if they don't have anything to say mm-hmm. and there's a great advantage to something like saucer smear where the quality can be sort of saved up over the course of a month and then you know you're not going to be wasting your time when you open it up
4: Well, I get enough material now. Of course, it's subjective as to what I find interesting, and that's what I put into Smear. Smear is eight pages, and I get uh, a couple of hundred pages of of stuff from the Internet, plus most of the UFO print magazines are still in existence. So I think, in my humble opinion, uh, egotistical though I may be, I think Smear is better than ever because I have a vast amount of material to choose from and I choose what I think is the best and I have more than enough uh, what I think is good material to uh fill eight pages or a great deal more than that. So that's how it's going now.
1: The cream of the crop. And you've had 408 issues of this.
4: You uh, must have read the cover of the latest issue. Uh, by the way, the February issue will reach you either today or tomorrow. Uh, it's in the mail.
1: I have it in front of
2: my <laughs> uh, You have it. There you go. And with a picture <laughs> of j- Dr. J. Allen Heinick on the cover. That's the one. I feel very bummed here because, of course, I've never gotten a copy of Saucer Smear, but I'm not as cool as Gene. Um, and I just have to live with that. In defense of blogs, uh, the one thing I'll say about blogs, one of my favorite blogs I read every day is by one of our frequent guests, Mac Tonys.
4: The thing oh, about yes, he's, he's good. He's Fascinating. He's good. Well,
2: the thing about blogs is that blogs are multimedia experiences. You can link to videos. You can link to Written pieces, you can link to audio, you can embed video in your blogs, and that's one of the great things. It's almost like your own personal TV channel, which is
4: really cool. No doubt it is. No, Tony's, uh, I've read uh, some of his material, and it varies in quality, but he is a very uh, good thinker and a deep thinker on this subject, and uh, I think he is worth reading, absolutely.
2: Absolutely, one of the leading lights. There's, there's a lot of information, of course. Uh, to get back to something that you were saying before, Chris, the Internet is um, it's a double-edged sword. It's a global communications medium that gives everybody an equal voice. And, of course, that's the advantage, the drawback, is that it gives everybody an equal voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like anything else, it's all about the um, the attentiveness of the person who is participating in the consumption of media to use their minds, and of course that's, these days, the big problem, using one's minds. Um, One of the things that you can say about something like a magazine is that there's editorial control. There is an editor who looks at things and cleans things up. If nothing else, looking at the quality of communications on the internet, um, I mean, go to YouTube and look at the user comments under any video, and one will be frightened and terrified by what appears to be a complete lack of understanding of just basic grammar on the part of the average person. And it's a little terrifying. Here we have the world's most advanced communications medium and most people use it for pornography. I mean, It says something about the human condition and that maybe that's the reason that they won't land and reveal themselves.
4: (laughs) Why would they?
3: And one of the things also about the internet is that the way that people can skip around between different types of sources so easily First of all, that sort of mimics the kind of free association that is one of the symptoms of schizophrenia. And on the other hand, one of the things that it does is it makes it very difficult for people to keep sorted out in their memory exactly where they read something. When you read books or magazines, then you can almost tell it's a tactile experience, too. And it is easy to remember Whether you read it in the New York Times or whether you read it in in a book by a a writer that you respect or whether you uh, read it in a pamphlet that a crazy person handed you on the street. Mm -hmm. When you've spent an hour or two skipping around on the internet using Google and using links in people's blogs, at the end of it, You have this jumble of impressions. And it's very hard to remember whether you read something on the Centers for Disease Control website or whether you read it on the blog of some complete lunatic. And I think that that's one of the things that has caused a little bit of a breakdown in the uh, BS detection capabilities of the average person in, for example, the UFO subculture. One of the symptoms of this is the way that the... Conspiracy theories, both extreme right-wing and extreme left-wing conspiracy theories, but especially extreme right-wing ones, have started to merge almost completely with the UFO subculture so that it's almost the same worldview at this point. And also the conspiracy theories that are connected to christian apocalypticism is something that has deeply invaded the ufo subculture at this point point. and i'm not sure that those developments are necessarily a good thing
1: because you know but the religions also have certain ufo cultures in them isn't wasn't muhammad ali after becoming this particular type of muslim had the belief that the god was up there in a spaceship orbiting earth
3: well, the Nation of Islam, was that the Nation of Islam?
1: I think uh, it but be, yes.
3: When, when, I, when I was in graduate, I went to the University of Chicago, and that was right in the neighborhood where Louis Farrakhan had his headquarters. And so the Nation of Islam had, had quite a presence in the community. And occasionally I would uh, pick up one of their newspapers, which were sold on the street. And after there was a slightly upsetting cartoon in one of them, I stopped doing that. I figured i will read it to the library from now on. But at any rate, that is in many ways a UFO religious. Louis Farrakhan claims to have come into contact with angels on a ufo scientology also is a, a a a religion that has a very large role for extraterrestrial contact in its in its belief system isn't
4: that true also of the mormon religion
3: that i know less about but there is a strong movement of ufo belief within mormonism and mormonism since it's essentially a religion that emerged in the 19th century when, when astronomy was, was making new discoveries, other planets figure prominently in, in the Mormon, Mormon worldview, in, in a way. Incidentally,
4: just uh, to interrupt for a moment, I, I met uh, Muhammad Ali several times uh, through mutual friends or whatever. He was a fascinating guy, and it's true that his belief in UFOs uh, came from his Muslim uh, uh, background. But uh, he also it,
1: saw UFO at one time.
4: <laughs> well, that's what I was going to get to. Uh, he is supposed to have seen one. Now, let's see if, if this isn't fairly easy to solve. He would go out into Central Park at dawn where it's very often very misty, hazy, etc. Just uh, as the dawn is coming up, and he would do road training, and on on one of those trips, uh, one of those jogs or whatever he was doing, he uh, saw this uh, UFO low on the horizon, and it was, I believe, just a ball of light hanging there. Well, cynics, such as even myself, solved that by uh, believing that it was a street light, and uh, I rather imagine that it was, but no one, including myself, ever Really had the nerve to mention that to Muhammad Ali.
1: You might <laughs> and, well, now, of course, he's not quite in that condition anymore.
4: I think that I could probably take him at this point. Uh, <laughs> he's uh, he's uh, had a degenerative nerve condition for years, and he's barely able to move or speak.
1: <clears throat> well, your case, kid, uh, you know, making, then, uh, I make an exception. I, I'm
4: barely uh, able to move or speak either, so it would be a, a very close contest. You know?
1: Well, it would certainly be a great Great match up there with Jim Mosley versus Muhammad
5: Ali. You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies in Secret Societies, the complete dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened. At the signpost up ahead, your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete
1: Dossier. Hey listeners, did you know that Fate is the oldest and best known publication on the paranormal? Well, since 1948, Fate has provided their readers with fascinating in-depth articles on subjects like psychics and spiritualists, ghosts and hauntings, UFOs and aliens, as well as readers' true personal mystical experiences. For under $20, you can keep up with all the latest information. To subscribe, call now at one 800 728 Two seven three zero, or visit Fate's website at www.fatemag.com. That's one eight hundred seven two eight two seven three zero, or www.fatemag.com. So what are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You've
4: entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast.
1: Are not fighting with each other because we're 2,500 miles away from each other. And then we have Jim Mosley, who was in Key West, Florida. And then we have Christopher Roth. And where are you located?
3: Milwaukee, Wisconsin.
1: Oh, my God. Okay. It's really cold today.
4: It's very cold here right now, that's for sure. Right. Ooh. May I throw out a. Slightly different topic uh, that I find interesting, and this uh, will be in the forthcoming March issue of Sausage Meier. Uh, there is a person who I've never heard of, maybe Chris has. Uh, his name is Isaac Coy, K O I, and I'm told that he is a lawyer living in Europe. Uh, He is obviously not a well-known saucer personage, and he uh, apparently has never written books or given lectures, but what he apparently did was spend a period of three or four years going through all the saucer literature that he could find, and he claims to have read 900 and some books, which I find a bit high, but let's take his word for it. And all of these Uh,
1: books for Read yesterday.
4: Uh, Yes, he is a speed reader, I would think. Books on saucers and uh, books uh, relating to NASA and so on uh, is the way he puts it. The point is, he came up with a list of the hundred best cases. And I'm not sure if best is the right word there, but the most talked about cases of all times in in the UFO field. And uh, I have a long article discussing that. Uh, The ones at the top of the hundred are ones that we've all heard of, and then as you go on, you you get to some that a lot of us have not heard of. But the reason I bring it up is this. In the whole hundred, there are few, if any, that go beyond uh, the early 1980s. I, I, as I recall offhand, the last ones were in 1989. They were just a couple. Most of them are from the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. He uh, chose these uh, cases on the basis of how often they're mentioned in this literature. And There again, you wonder uh, uh, what kind of a mention. A short mention? A favorable mention? I mean, he doesn't make it all clear what his uh, criteria were but nevertheless on the basis of the numbers of mentions uh, that is how he drew up this uh, list my reason to talk about this is to throw it out to all of you and I'm doing an informal poll which I'm going to also probably include in the next smear Why is it? If we take his word for it, and I choose to, even though his criteria are a bit fuzzy, but the same thing has come out in lists of the ten top, and lists of this, and lists of that. There's been a number of lists lately, and it always comes out the same way. The last 20 or 30 years have no top cases. And my question is why? I, I don't know why. I hope someone does.
2: Yeah, I I completely disagree with his if his conclusion is that there have been no really really compelling cases, you know, like Rendlesham in in
4: 1980, like. Uh, yeah the, well that's it that's within the parameter I'm talking about 1980 right. is okay but there's nothing from 1990 nothing from 2000
2: what about the earlier episode the evening of the phoenix lights not the lights themselves but the
4: uh, huge I don't know if Chris will remember this but we were talking about that on the phone just the other day yeah. there's nothing yeah. about the phoenix lights that are compelling maybe it was something maybe it wasn't I
3: think that the phoenix lights was was a very compelling case I but I think that and it's, it's interesting that that's the one that we can come up with. I mean, the O'Hare sighting that we were just discussing, that was Highly spectacular by the standards of the 60s. And the other interesting thing is you have this drop-off, and, and maybe, I don't know, David Eugene, you want to you dispute me on this, but at least an apparent drop-off of cases that are really compelling multiple witness physical evidence cases compared to the 1960s and 70s, which was the heyday of it. At the same time, the 1980s and 1990s are, to, to listen to many ufologists, precisely the period when there was an explosion in abduction activity, where you hear figures like 3, 4, 5, 10 million Americans being abducted. So here you have supposedly aliens coming into people's bedrooms on a weekly basis. There's a precipitous drop-off. Impressive multiple witness sightings and and physical trace cases.
2: Well, not if we look at the South American flap of the last 20 years. Not if we look at Mexico City of the 90s. When we talk about the Phoenix Lights episodes, we must delineate between the large craft seen earlier in the evening and what was most likely flares that were dropped later that evening to create a sense of confusion about that evening, which I firmly believe is what happened that day. And then the other thing, and I'm going to say this, and and, and everybody might grow when I say this, but I will be the one person in this quote-unquote field who will continue to sound the alarm bells of the use of the term alien when there is, to my mind, at this point in time, and I agree 100% with Valet about this. There's absolutely no evidence to indicate that we are dealing with quote-unquote alien slash extraterrestrial beings.
4: Oh, I agree completely that. with that, yeah. uh, uh, by the way. As well, if I, if the term slipped
3: out, and I, I, can, okay. I can either retract <laughs> it or, or, or define it in the broadest possible terms. Well, no, it's a
1: common culture. We talk of them as alien beings, whether they are or not.
4: But that's a part of the problem uh, that we face in the whole field. Most of the mainstream uh, think that they must be aliens, and there's no no proof of that either. It just uh, isn't. It's something uh, peculiar indeed, but it is not necessarily alien. And uh, I uh, go with what Hynek uh, said on the uh, masthead of the current uh, smear, that when we find uh, the answer, it will be a, a quantum leap in our knowledge, but he doesn't say it's going to be aliens because he, too, did not believe in aliens. I talked to him personally, and uh, he wrote it up many times in his latter years.
1: Yes, but he seemed to be leaning towards a 4D explanation of some yes. sort. Yes, yes. Well, let's that. What do we regard as 4D? Is that from
6: another dimension?
4: <laughs> uh, yes, well, uh, if thing? I were able to do that, I would be... Uh, talking at uh, harvard or something you see rather than on this show i uh, cannot uh, explain uh, what it is but it's something beyond our understanding at this time
2: well it's not completely beyond our our understanding there it, it is the cutting edge of experimental physics and theoretical physics um it's the absolute cutting edge people who play around with string theory and quantum mechanics are considered even in the mainstream physics world to be a little out there meanwhile there is experimental evidence that indicates uh, the reality of dimensions beyond the four dimensions that we know we can we can pretty clearly show that in a laboratory but do we have the instrumentation at this point in time and do we have the theoretical understanding to to advance ourselves to the point where we can provide Laboratory experimentation that is definitive as in its conclusions. Well, based on the uncertainty principle, you're kind of you're you're sort of mixing apples and hand grenades. If a phenomenon modifies itself based on the expectations of the observer, then how in the hell do you apply some sort of an objective a measuring criteria to that phenomenon? You, you basically can't. And this is where what we have now is essentially the place where science gets us so far, but. Unfortunately, our current view of science is that science has taken the place of religion in our society in many ways. And is that necessarily the most coherent way to approach scientific understanding? Maybe not. Maybe what we're at is is this interesting point where we have to redefine our goals and maybe create some integration between things like science and spirituality now when one makes that statement one gets both sides of the fence screaming and moaning which i don't know to my mind says that you're getting close to the truth
4: but we've lost our our focus here my question a while back was why uh, you're saying it's not necessarily true but i'm saying that in the opinion of several people, especially the one that I mentioned that did the uh, survey of the top hundred cases, it does seem that the same pattern comes up again and again, that most if not all of them are many years ago, and the only answer I've heard uh, to that or the only explanation that I've heard is that to some extent and in some way abductions have taken the place of the uh, other types of sightings, and I, I that's the only answer I've heard, and I don't get much out of it. But it's well. The other not thing, Jim, is, at all.
1: Jim. The other thing is that certain cases get kind of a folklore aspect to them, where they become part of the urban legend. Certainly, Roswell does. You know, right now, today, I think most people who hear about UFOs think Roswell. And if Roswell falls, the entire UFO mystery falls with it, which is which is ridiculous, of course. I believe.
4: Sure, yeah, uh, Roswell. I don't have it in front of me, although I could grab it. Roswell is in the top three or four of the hundred nationally, as course. you would expect. Yeah.
1: What else is on that list Do you have
4: recall? Uh, the, without going
1: thing. to the list and everything else. So. A
4: funny thing that you would ask, uh, we've reached for our list, which is, just happens to be right here. You can stop me when you want. Uh, number one, Kenneth Arnold. Number two, Betty and Barney Hill. Number three, Georgia Adamski which is strange. Very. Four, four is Roswell. Five is Socorro. Six is Thomas Mantell. Oh, I should be giving you the dates, but you probably know them. I'll give you the I don't dates think it here. matters
2: so much. But here's the Go thing. Sure. But, but, so what he's compiling this list based on, the amount of coverage of these events. Well, one could simply make the statistical observation that the longer an event has been discussed, the older it is, the longer it's been discussed, the more editorial there has been generated on that event.
4: Well, yeah, that's a good point, but I don't no, think it's the whole
2: answer. Yeah.
3: There's something else that's going on. One of them is that in the 60s and early 70s, you had this profusion of daylight sightings of humanoids or reports of daylight yes. sightings of humanoids. And mm-hmm. those seem to have fallen off the map completely and have been replaced by abduction reports that we can only really know about through the unreliable murk of hypnosis. Now, what has happened to those daylight phenomena, whatever they were? Now, I think, Jim, you were saying that Carl Flock was of the opinion that maybe they were here and then they left again.
4: That, that was Flock's uh, contribution to theory, and uh, I respect it, but I don't think that that's the answer. He thinks that there were real 3D space people. He said his uh, beliefs system was founded in the in his childhood which would be the 40s or 50s so he's not into the more esoteric theories so he he wants to believe in 3d uh, aliens and they were here for quite a while uh, from the 40s through perhaps the 70s or early 80s I forget where his cutoff point was and then they went away go go ahead no 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 that's it that, that's uh, his' belief. I I don't think that's uh, correct, but that was his belief. Well,
3: with regard to that, I really want to recommend for people who haven't looked at it or looked at enough of it, the work of Martin Kottmeyer. And I know that he's someone that's a a smear reader. And he's someone, he is a, a, a farmer in Illinois, and he has an incredible knowledge of the UFO literature. And what he has done is he has traced the development of the different imagery for example of Hmm. what UFO entities are supposed to look like over the years and he's tried to correlate that with images in popular culture he for example was the person who found out that an episode of The Outer Limits with a bug-eyed alien abductor being appeared on TV just a few weeks or a couple weeks before Betty and Barney Hill Began using that motif in the description of their encounter, which they hadn't been doing up to that point. And he's the person who also pointed out that abduction reports did not include skinny necks and ink-black eyes before those were used as elements in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, the 1977 film. And whether you accept the cause-and-effect relationship that Kottmeier implies. One thing is clear is that there are trends and uh, patterns in the kinds of beings that are reported, and those trends and patterns much more resemble the way folklore works than the way that actual eyewitness descriptions we would hope would work. For example, a lot of the people in the 1970s and 1980s who emerged through people like Bud Hopkins's circle of abductees and so on and Streber, many of them talk about how they were abducted as children and their parents described that they had been abducted as children too. And yet, we're the witness reports of beings like that from those periods they're
1: not there. Hey, you know what? We're just about out of time, so before we end this discussion, and frankly, this is something where we can go on for another couple of hours, and I think, Jim, before you did this show, you wondered how we would do this for two hours, and as you see, it could have been four. Jim, I want you to spend a few moments telling people once again how they can get a copy of Saucer Smear, a physical printed copy. That is correct. That's physical and printed.
4: Yes. Well, they can write to me, to my post. Office box, which is box one seven oh nine P West Florida three three oh four one. Why don't you say that address one more time? Oh, why don't I? PO box one seven oh nine P West, two words, Florida three three O four one.
1: Christopher, where can one contact you?
3: You can reach me at my email address, which is C F as in Frank R O T H at earthlink.net and also I encourage people to go out and buy the book E.T. Culture anthropology in outer spaces which is edited by deborah Batalia, and one of the it includes my chapter ufology as anthropology race extraterrestrials and the occult i don't think you'll find it on shelves anywhere but it's available through amazon and and other sources like that
1: well that certainly gives us a different way of looking at the ufo phenomenon
2: it's an excellent book by the way i've been reading it and it's really quite an excellent and a very academic home so It might not be what people would consider to be exciting reading about UFOs landing on the lawn but actually, it'll give you a very good understanding for what is happening under the hood, so to speak. Well, sometimes we have to stop looking under the
1: lawns and above the lawns and see what goes on. Indeed. Indeed. Yes. <laughs> Jim, yes, Gene, of course. Jim Mosley, Christopher Roth, thank you both so much for joining us this week on the PowerCast.
4: Thank you. Keep your eye on the sky. Amen. That's all I can tell you. Somehow I knew he was going to say that. <laughs> because you have telepathic powers that that's why you're the <laughs> upcoming editor of Selfish Rear. <laughs> the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The PowerCast.